Hello from Gilbert and Tobin. I'm Moya Dodd. And I'm Matt Rubenstein, and this is The Competitive Edge, what you need to know about competition law in Australia and around the world. Today, no poachers and gamekeepers. US Department of Justice economist Dr. Brian Clark joins us to talk about antitrust, labour markets, and also Stephen King. We're talking about like very famous names like Stephen King and, and other sorts of people that are obviously the people that are sort of centrally placed when you walk into the bookstore. The case really illustrated this point that basically a merger could reduce competition between two firms to purchase things like labor from workers in the same way that a merger could also reduce competition between firms to sell things to, to consumers. But first, Matt, what's been happening around the grounds? Well, one big thing is Microsoft's proposed acquisition of video game publisher Activision Blizzard for almost 69 billion US dollars. You might remember Activision's titles for the early Atari consoles of the 1980s. Uh, Vaguely. Like Chopper Command, Worm Womper. Worm Womper. Good one. Pitfall and Pitfall 2 Lost Caverns. They always came with these beautiful, dramatic oil paintings on the box art, which, of course, looked nothing like the very blocky, low-resolution actual games. Always disappointing to me. Did they do the famously terrible game of the movie E.T., which did so badly that the unsold cartridges had to be buried in the desert and covered in concrete? Yeah, that was a first-party Atari game, actually, and it pretty much destroyed Atari and a lot of the industry with it. Activision, though, survived pretty well, and it now publishes what they call AAA titles, in particular, the very popular Call of Duty franchise. Who does the FIFA games? Well, that was Electronic Arts, though from now on, the game's going to be called EA Sports FC, because the FIFA brand is moving to a new developer after the current FIFA 23. Ah, the one with Sam Kerr and Kylian Mbappe on the cover. That's the one. Uh, Microsoft, of course, makes the Xbox console and publishes games like Halo and Doom, those series. And also Microsoft International Soccer 2000, that was a while ago now. Uh, yeah, I might have played that on the very blocky desktop computers that we used to have at work. Yeah, I got pretty good at Minesweeper back then. Oh, Minesweeper, yes. But regulators have been concerned that if Microsoft acquired Activision, it could withhold big titles like Call of Duty from the other platforms, in particular the Sony PlayStation platform, but also the cloud gaming platforms that are emerging now. So how do the cloud platforms work for gaming? Well, the idea is that instead of the game sitting on your console or your computer in your house or at work, it's actually playing on a data center somewhere and it's streamed over the internet to your screen and then your blind flailing button mashes get sent back to the server. At least that's been my experience. Oh, and does it work? Well, I mean, because I do anything for this podcast Mm -hmm. and because I've been stuck at home with COVID for a bit, I did try some cloud gaming recently. And, you know, it works pretty well. It's maybe not quite as sharp or responsive as your own console or computer, but it's close and it's a lot better than those old Atari games. Well, in the US, the Federal Trade Commission is looking to stop the merger. They're worried about its impact on both console gaming and cloud services. That's right. Um, But by contrast, in the UK, the Competition and Markets Authority actually got comfortable that Microsoft would still release games on the other consoles, but it's decided to oppose the merger just on the cloud gaming aspects. Even though Microsoft offered undertakings to basically allow Activision games to be streamed on any cloud service at no additional cost to the customer or the cloud platform. That's right. Uh, But the CMA said they didn't want the future of such an emerging market to be too influenced by the terms of that undertaking from Microsoft. Mm. But then the European Commission decided to accept the same kind of undertakings and allow the merger. They did. Uh, The Commission was also most concerned about cloud gaming, but it said that the undertakings would actually make the acquisition pro-competitive. And I guess that's another example of the Europeans being just a bit more open to behavioural undertakings, sort of in the right circumstances, than some other jurisdictions are. And like they were with Google and Fitbit, and also with Kona Cranes and Cargotech. 
Commissioner Margaret Vestigas recently said that an enforcer needs options other than clearing or blocking a merger or even divestitures. She even called it their call of duty. She did. She also said that she'd been told the call of duty was a shooter franchise, but the Microsoft wouldn't shoot themselves in the foot by not offering it on other platforms. She could write for this podcast. She could. So where does that leave us? Well, Microsoft has appealed the UK decision to the Competition Appeal Tribunal for a hearing in late July, and that's on a judicial review basis, which is quite narrow. And if they win, the CMA will have to make the decision again, and they may not change their minds. And in the US, the administrative hearing in the FTC's case is scheduled for August. Possible clash with the World Cup there, I think. So we'll have to see what happens after that. We will. Meanwhile, the ACCC has said that it's engaging with overseas regulators before it makes its own decision. But I'm not sure how helpful they've been collectively so far. Interesting times. What else is going on, Matt? Or have you been too busy playing games in the cloud? I did have time to notice that the ACCC has made its decision on Woolworth's planned acquisition of the Super IGA in Carabao, just outside our national capital, which may now be the most famous supermarket in Australia, at least in certain circles. Certain circles, yes. Definitely one for the competition law tragics bus tour, along with probably Murray Bridge and Manham from the rural press case. Yeah, Newcastle and Maitland for the old coal vend case. Various servos around Ballarat for the petrol price fixing cases. Yep, and definitely the Eurong Beach Resort on the way to Fraser Island. Oh, yes. Now both called Gurry. Indeed, now you're talking. Well, anyway, Woolworths last tried to buy that particular site in 2008, but the ACCC said no sale. Did they have any more luck this time? They did not. Uh, the ACCC has again opposed the acquisition. It said the competition in the Queen Bee and Jerobumbra area would be substantially lessened if Woolworths ended up owning three of the six local supermarkets. Hmm, bit like the early days of COVID, huh? Only two per customer. That's how it is. Coles has two of the other sites and Aldi has one, but the ACCC said it was also important that the Super IGA was local and independent and then offered a different shopping experience from the chains. Well, we don't yet have a public competition assessment, but it sounds like the ACCC haven't moved much from the statement of issues they released in December last year. No, and that had a lot in common with the PCA they issued back in 2008. It had the same three to five kilometre radius local geographic market, mm -hmm. and that hadn't changed much either. There's a, there's a new IGA just outside the area in Gugong, but that wasn't thought to offer enough constraint. Last time, the ACCC said that if Woolworths didn't buy Carabar, it would probably be acquired by Superbarn, which is exactly what happened. What do they now say about the future this time? This time, they just say it's likely to stay with its current owner or an alternative independent purchaser. They haven't identified anyone in, in particular. And Woolworths hasn't said whether they might go ahead with the merger or else seek a declaration from the court that the ACCC was wrong, but that could make it a pretty expensive purchase. Well, at least they get everyday rewards points, I suppose. Do we have time for one more? Well, we've got time for this one, which is pretty wild. Um, the owner of a jumping castle hire company, Awesome Party Supplies, has just been sentenced to 11 years in prison after he hired arsonists to set fire to his competitors' jumping castles. Wait, what? He paid $2,000 for each fire and sent the arsonists back to finish the job if they hadn't caused enough damage the first time. One of them threw a Molotov cocktail through a window in a factory and destroyed 110 castles in one go. My goodness, that's like a whole empire of castles. I am very interested in fires, you know, Matt. I mean, not in a bad way, but because my dad was a fireman and I actually lived in the fire station as a kid. No way. My bedroom was right above the engine room, so every time there was a call out, the sirens would wail and off they'd go. Well, it might have been this arsonist or someone like him. This one pleaded guilty to 11 counts of conspiracy to arson in the end. Conspiracy to arson? How is that a competition law case? Well, if you remember the old test for misuse of market power, one of the things you had to show was that you'd taken advantage of your market power somehow. And back in 1992, Justice French said, 
that if a corporation with substantial market power were to engage an arsonist to burn down a competitor's factory, and thus to deter or prevent its competitor from engaging in competitive activity, it would not thereby contravene Section 46. And he called that an extreme example, but maybe not so far-fetched. It seems not. Our previous podcast guest, Catherine Kemp, wrote an article a few years ago arguing that Justice French's arsonist actually could have taken advantage of their market power under the old test if the market power would make the benefits of the arson more likely or more substantial. Is that because of Section 466A, which said that the conduct just had to be related to the market power? That's the one. Uh, And of course, the new test only needs you to have market power and a purpose or effect of lessening competition. There doesn't need to be any connection between them at all. Mm. But all this happened before the new test, didn't it? Yeah, it all happened in late 2016, early 2017. Mr. Awesome Party Hire was only caught after he paid for his own premises to be set on fire to avoid suspicion. That time they caught the arsonist, and he immediately grassed him up for all the arsons. Ah, a bit like the cartel immunity policy, huh? Although I see that the arsonist got eight and a half years himself. Why did this take so long? Well, that's because the awesome arson party guy skipped bail and went to Perth to run a fraudulent stamp operation under another name. What? After he was busted for that, they found out who he really was and extradited him back to Victoria to face the music. Awesome party music, I hope. Well, let's hope Justice French is enjoying all of this. Yeah, he called it. He did. And in the meantime, Matt, our own Anna Belgiorno-Netta sat down with the Department of Justice economist Dr Brian Clark at the recent ABA spring meeting in Washington, D.C. That's right. So I interviewed Anna last time, and she interviewed him. And I'm just going to assume that he personally interviewed Stephen King for the DOJ's case against the Penguin Random House merger. Of course. But has Kevin Bacon ever been in a Stephen King movie? I don't think he has, actually, though, of course, he's been in a few with uh, people who have. As you'd expect. But Dr. Clark had a lot to say about that merger and other ways that the DOJ is addressing labour relations and other examples of monopsony power. Let's take a listen. So it is such a delight to get to conduct this Competitive Edge podcast interview direct from Washington, D.C., at the end of the American Bar Association Antitrust Spring Meeting with the one and only Brian Clark, (laughs) economist at the Department of Justice in the Antitrust Division. And I was lucky enough to be on a panel with Brian at the spring meeting where we were talking about incorporating equity into competition law and from a global perspective. Thank you so much again, Brian, and welcome to Competitive Edge. Oh, no, thank you for having me, and, and I really appreciate it. How have you found Spring Meeting? Oh, it's it's been really, really fun. There, There is something special about getting to, to sort of see everybody in person. We're really very keen to dig into and explore what you were focused on on our panel, so this idea of competition law and labor economics and the intersection of the two and how the DOJ is really pivoting to focus quite heavily on that issue. What really animated my interest in research in in grad school and when I was looking at these labor economic questions really had to do with thinking about these applications of economics to these public policy questions. It's something that is really obvious and sort of like how that applies in antitrust and in what we at the DOJ do or certainly like other enforcement agencies in the U.S. and, and from around the world do. It's the same sort of focus on like, hey, we have this really important question to answer and and economics is is a tool that we can use to to sort of get at the answer and and sort of how do we do that most effectively. So given our panel was on incorporating equity and competition law, how do you see 
these issues playing out and what's been your interest in equity and inclusion more generally? Yeah, I feel like that's the, the one thing that's just been really gratifying for, for me. I'm a gay man. And one thing that I just want to mention is just sort of how great it is to see the commitment to not only sort of increasing the representation and the inclusion of my community, but so many others sort of across the section. And actually, this is like a really good time for me to slot in my obligatory DOJ boilerplate. Obviously, like all the stuff that I'm talking about is, is they're my views, do not necessarily represent the views of the, the DOJ or sort of say what the DOJ would do in a particular situation. And, and I think it's a good place for me to give a shout out to sort of all the people that I've worked with across the ABA just in, in my personal capacity. And, and so like the opportunity to, to sort of work with a tremendous tremendous group of people. So we've touched on how clearly you've found this great community of people around equity and inclusion that you've really enjoyed stepping into. And you also have this, you know, real expertise in in labor economics. How do you see the two intersecting, Brian? What's interesting is that like what you see with with those is the potential for it to apply to, to such a wide variety of people. We discussed on the panel a case here that concerned essentially the, the sort of labor for the, the kind of work of anticipated top selling authors here in the, in the U.S. And we're talking about like very famous names like Stephen King and, and other sorts of people that are obviously the people that are sort of centrally placed when you walk into the bookstore. That'd be quite a moment having any kind of merger review that involves Stephen King. Yeah, we don't get those very often. But I think, too, authors aren't the only people that work, like earn a a wage for their living. I mean, it affects people from all sorts of backgrounds. It touches on people that are working poultry processing plants Mm -hmm. or people that, you know, are school nurses. So so really, I, I think when you think about equity and inclusion, it really does sort of show you, like, even just with labor, that sort of looking out for sort of these situations that can affect anyone is really interesting and and exciting to see those sorts of developments, at least here in the U.S. So we have a very different framework in Australia where our Competition and Consumer Act explicitly carves out matters relating to employment, which is very different to the situation here in the States and linked to our labor laws being quite different and the unionization and the collective bargaining agreements that are much more prevalent in Australia than in the States. But this exception is potentially on the cusp of being definitely reanalyzed because we just had our Assistant Minister for Competition, Charities and Treasury, Andrew Lee, was actually just recently on our podcast. He directed our Treasury and our Commission, the ACCC, to assess the impacts of non-compete clauses and any action that the Australian government should take in response. He actually referred to the DOJ's work and quoted the Antitrust Assistant Attorney General, Jonathan Cantor, and said that anti-competitive practices in labor markets are treated the same as anti-competitive practices in markets for good and services. And that's a very different approach than what we have in Australia, given the carve-outs and the exceptions in our laws. So how is the DOJ looking at these issues? I think the first thing that is just really interesting to point out, and, and we talked about this a bunch at the panel, it's just exciting to see like this commitment to advancing equity and inclusion in all of these different countries. And, and to quote A.G. Canner again, you know, I'm thinking in particular about a talk at Howard University in, in D.C. just a, a few months ago where he said, Americans are workers, creators and inventors. Freedom and justice in the economy mean that everyone has a fair opportunity 
on a level playing field. We all deserve competition for our labor and, and our ideas. So when I think about what we see happening here in the U.S., I don't really think like the striking things are really the differences in, in say, the goal of advancing equity and inclusion. It's it's really comes down to differences in the sorts of tools that we all have in these in these different jurisdictions and in sort of how you see them being applied to to sort of reach this overall goal. So you know some changes that may be happening in in Australia and, and certainly in Canada and South Africa that we were thinking about tools that may even explicitly call out incorporating equity and inclusion in in the sort of agency's analysis. It, it also strikes me as well that there's a complement to, to that approach. It's sort of not just what tools do you have, but how do you use them? Is it's about sort of saying things like, well, if we see an opportunity to apply the tools that we have that intersect with these sort of equity and inclusion issues, I, I think it's just really interesting and to be careful not to overlook situations where the tools that you have are really well suited to, to addressing any competitive or competitive issues that affect all sorts of people. So applying the tools to your toolkit, can we get your overall debrief on the work that the DOJ did in that Penguin Random House merger? I think it's a really fun case to talk about for a variety of different reasons. The case really illustrated this point that basically a merger could reduce competition between two firms to purchase things like labor from workers in the same way that a merger could also reduce competition between firms to sell things to, to consumers. So, so just to give you like a little bit of background, Penguin Random House and Simon & Schuster are two publishing houses that um, in the U.S. are the largest and fourth largest publishers. While there are a number of, of other publishing houses in the U.S., the industry recognizes a big five set of the largest publishers, which have the resources, expertise, track record, and, and other things like that to do things like successfully publish the sort of Stephen King novel that you see, you know, when you walk into the bookstore. It takes expertise to get a book to that place. And, and particularly these anticipated top selling books. And essentially, we argued that the competition among publishers, Penguin Random House and Simon & Schuster included, for those anticipated top-selling books was good for authors in that it led to higher pay in the form of larger advances to sort of help write a book, greater share of the royalties from the sale of those books. And consequently, the merger would harm authors by reducing that competition for their work which would lead to things like lower payments from advances and royalties, and which would ultimately make it harder for authors to, to make a living selling their work. And I think, you know, a lot of people were here really excited to, to see that the court ultimately agreed with the division's arguments in that case. That analysis is very applicable in Australia because it's really about monopsony power, which is looked at a lot by the ACCC. It's just that we have this carve out for specifically labor-related issues, which is is being reevaluated. So it's a very interesting space to be looking at at the moment. 
One of our co-hosts for the Competitive Edge podcast is not only a lawyer, but also a writer, Matt Rubenstein. And so fabulous, we've covered the book merger. <laughs> but now shifting gears, both in terms of moving from merger review to the enforcement side of things, and also from books to sport, which will appeal very much to our other co-host, Moya Dodd, <laughs> who's not only a partner of our law firm, but also ex-vice captain of Australia's national soccer team. Oh, geez. Uh, so keen to hear in the enforcement space and looking at agreements that have limited competition in labor markets, what is the DOJ doing in that space and what examples do you have, especially sport related? I just want to take a moment to chat a little bit about this overall question that we talked about on the panel, which is how we address equity and inclusion in this work. And it's really easy for me as an economist to get carried away talking about things like defining a market and analyzing mm -hmm. substitution. But these sorts of tools don't just apply to, to sort of protecting competition for a sort of rarefied group of people like the sorts of people that write anticipated top-selling books. But it applies to, to everyone. A point that RAG Canner again made at this same Howard University event that I mentioned earlier, where he talked about how antitrust protects real people and described the antitrust division as aspiring to fight for and, and win economic justice. So the two cases that I have in mind concern the division bringing both civil and, and criminal charges that concern agreements that affected workers by reducing competition for their labor. So the civil case concerns information sharing about the wages that poultry processing plants paid their workers. And in particular, in that case, we allege that three poultry processors, a consulting company, and then the president of that consulting company shared information about wages that allowed those poultry processors to coordinate instead of compete on setting wages for their workers. And our proposed agreement in that case addressed the harm from that information sharing by doing a number of things. It prohibited the firms from sharing that sort of information in the future. It subjected them to a court-appointed monitor to make sure that they were sticking to sort of that, that part of the agreement. It barred the president of the consulting company from working in that industry in the future. And then it also required the firms to pay nearly $85 million in restitution for the workers that were affected by this information sharing conspiracy. And the criminal case I mentioned concerned two competing healthcare staffing companies that help provide nursing services to schools in, in Las Vegas, Nevada, here in the U.S., and that entered into a conspiracy to allocate employees and, and fix their wages. And one of the companies in that case ultimately pled guilty and, and paid both a criminal fine and, and again, restitution for the wages that were affected by that scheme. So we've looked at mergers, we've looked at information sharing agreements, and, and is there another bucket that the DOJ has focused on in, in the labor market space? Widening the, the sort of aperture a bit. There's a lot in addition to the cases that, that we bring, including things like our international program, which works with competition agencies from South Africa, Canada, of course, Australia, and many other countries from around the world. But one other example, and this is where I can, I can finally work in an example of a, of a sport related case well, for, make for Moya happy. Yes. Mm. Yeah. So like definitely want to make sure I do that <laughs> is some of the work we do filing briefs and litigations that are brought by other plaintiffs 
here in the U.S., a few of which I, I can think of that recently touched on on these sorts of equity and inclusion concepts. So the first that I, I just wanted to talk about a bit is is our brief in NCAA v. Alston, which was a, a recent Supreme Court case, which concerned rules that restricted the compensation that schools could provide student athletes. And in that, in the briefing that the division submitted in that case, we we argued contrary to what the NCAA was saying in that case, was that the lower court in in that case applied the correct legal framework when it found that the sort of restraints that you'd see in these contracts on the sort of educational benefits that schools could offer their student athletes just weren't necessary to, to achieve the sort of like pro-competitive benefits of their overall agreement. So just a really interesting brief. But the, the second, you know, that I wanted to mention was a brief that we filed in a case that fast food workers brought against McDonald's fast food chain here in the U.S. that concerned no hire and, and no solicitation terms for workers in McDonald's franchise agreements. So again, I think like you see the sort of places where, um, you know, division statements are, are touching on these sorts of equity and inclusion issues. Any final points on the Department of Justice's work going forward in this space, Brian? What I just wanted to mention again is it's also really important to think about the way in which we're applying those tools. You know, it's, it's one thing to, to have them available, but like taking them out of the toolkit and <laughs> sort of putting them to work is, is another really important thing to think about. The acts that the division enforces, the Sherman Act and the Clayton Act, those two acts are over a hundred years old. All of the cases that I, that we've been talking about are, are applying those laws that are over a hundred years old, but there's still, the division is arguing in, in these cases that they're applicable to, to these situations. And I think like just a, a good reminder to, to sort of make sure that we're like looking for those opportunities and not overlooking situations where you know, these sorts of equity and inclusion concerns intersect with competition concerns. And how long-lasting these laws are, the fact that they still apply to our everyday life on topics that are so fundamental as the way we work and how we work is pretty amazing to see. And what's especially incredible in this space, I think, is is how the conversation is becoming more and more global. And And this is just one little example of that, and gosh, I feel so lucky to have gotten to have this conversation, Brian, because it truly, we have so much to learn from each other and so appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Oh, no, of course, like, it's entirely my pleasure. Hopefully, like, we can sort of come up with another panel idea for next year. What a great interview. You know, the US college system used to get a lot of attention because of a rule that college athletes couldn't be paid anything. They had to give their labour for free or, at most, for the cost of a college education. Yeah, which they may or may not actually get. Yeah, indeed. But now, at least, athletes can make money from licensing their name, image and likeness, which can favour the big name players, of course, although there's some evidence that it's also a bit more egalitarian as between male and female athletes than some of the other sports that do pay. Yeah, so we've talked a bit before about the antitrust issues that sports leagues can raise, and mm-hmm. there was actually a separate panel at the same spring meeting about that, which asked whether the special treatment that sport often gets could be coming to an end. Well, there's been an exception for baseball since 1922, without any clear reason except that it's America's pastime. That's right. The other sports have some protection from the courts and the legislature, but not as much as baseball. And, and there are quite a few legal actions underway at the moment that could chip away at that immunity. It's a shame that we couldn't get Anna on all of the panels. Yeah, maybe next year. As Anna mentioned, in Australia, we have our own exception for employment arrangements, which often does extend to player conditions, but not necessarily to other arrangements, say, between the leagues and the clubs. 
And it sounds like that exception might be getting a closer look. It does. I mean, the focus on employment gets a bit tricky when you've got the gig economy, as we do now, and it's not clear how arrangements between employers, like no poach agreements, really fit into our industrial relations system. So maybe the exception could be focused a bit better, at least. It could, though the current government wouldn't want to do too much to weaken the collective bargaining system, you'd think. Sounds like a crystal ball to me. You can take it that way. But before we go, we're going to need a moratorium on AI stories, I think, because there's just too much going on. But we do have to mention the lawyer who used ChatGPT to prepare a filing in a case against Avianza Airlines. Yeah, I did read about this. ChatGPT hallucinated a bunch of cases that didn't exist, including Shaboon versus Egypt Air, Varghese versus South China Airlines, and a state of Durden versus KLM Royal Dutch Airlines. That's right. All were citations that were real, but belonged to other cases that were just completely irrelevant. You know, I met King Willem Alexander of the Netherlands once. <laughs> of course he did. <laughs> no, actually, it was, at, it was at a Socceroos match, that one where Timmy Cale scored the banger with his left foot at the far post. But the king actually used to fly KLM passenger planes sometimes, so they really were Royal Dutch Airlines. Hey, like John Travolta when he used to pilot for Qantas for some reason. Oh, was he a king? Well, he was in a Stephen King movie. He was in Carrie. Oh, well, all right. Um, but ChatGPT also hallucinated extracts and entire judgments which cited their own non-existent or wrongly referenced cases like Zickerman versus Korean Airlines and Zaunbrecher versus Transocean Offshore Deepwater Drilling. But, Matt, why didn't this lawyer check that the cases were real? Well, he did, apparently, but he checked with ChatGPT, and ChatGPT just doubled down. Oh, dear. Well, at least the court checked. You do wonder sometimes whether they actually go through all those citations. Well, that's what Clark GPT is for, or Clerk GPT if you're in the US. I did ask ChatGPT for a list of funny-sounding cases, but they all seem to be real ones, so they might have actually tuned the algorithm since the case came out. Uh-huh. Even uh, US versus article consisting of 50,000 cardboard boxes, more or less, each containing one pair of clacker balls. I'm not going to ask. Um, well, what about Kellogg Co. versus Exxon Corp, a.k.a. the Battle of the Breakfast Cereals? Well, that was a real trademark dispute, but it wasn't called the Battle of the Breakfast Cereals, and it didn't involve a line of cereal called Exxon, as ChatGPT insists to me. <laughs> right. It was actually about Exxon's whimsical tiger. Put a tiger in your tank. That's right. And, and that was said to infringe on Tony the Tiger, who said that Frost Flakes are great. Of course, Kellogg's has also taken Toucan Golf to court, saying they infringed on Toucan Sam of Fruit Loops fame. They're really quite litigious for a cereal company. And they took Australian tennis player Tanazi Kokonakis to court over his use of the Special K nickname. They did. So, I mean, maybe truth is still stranger than ChatGPT. At least some of the time. Remember, you can find relevant links in the show notes. And email us, please email us, at edge at gtlaw.com.au. And we've got some great guests still to come and an all-star discussion on environmental regulation and competitive collaboration for sustainability purposes. And if you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe, leave us a review and tell your friends. Till next time, this was The Competitive Edge with Gilbert and Tobin. <laughs>